Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 175. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Charles Lou. Charles, are you feeling unstoppable today? Eric, I'm super pumped to be here with you. I'm unstoppable force, ready to go. <laughs> yes, awesome. Charles, a Scotland native, got his start in the restaurant industry as a fry cook at Long John Silver. Throughout college and while studying for his bar exam, Charles worked in all parts of the restaurant and hospitality industry. Today, Charles owns and operates four stout burger and beer locations, Bobby London, Gaster Lounge, Boomtown Brewery, Morrison, and currently developing Trejo's Tacos, Fred's Chicken and Biscuit, and lastly, Third Wave Coffee with Meta World Peace. On top of all of this, Charles consults on a numerous amount of restaurant and lounge projects throughout California and is recognized as one of the city's leading experts on restaurant operations as well as licensing, permitting, zoning for all hospitality venues. I don't know how you're doing this, Charles. It's so impressive. I can't wait to learn how you're managing all of this, Charles. <laughs> and I, I, I got tired just listening to you <laughs> rattle it off, man. It sounds uh, it sounds much better than it is. But Believe no, me, it's I, I tried to keep it brief. And that was as brief as, as I could keep it. But it's really impressive. And I cannot wait to get your stories and your advice, man. You're just really an impressive individual. So... Let's start off this interview like we start off every interview, Charles, with a success quote or mantra to get that motivational, inspirational ball going. Okay, I got it, got it. So, you know, I, I have a couple of them, but there's one that's always, always resonated with me, and it's actually famous words from uh, Rocky Balboa. Um, you, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life, but it ain't how hard you hit. It's about hard you, how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. Oh, so that's man. just one that's always kind of landed well with me. I and, um, yeah, and I think it's so applicable in, in so many parts of, of my life and really everybody in the restaurant business's life. It's so true. I just think that, you know, general optimism and just drive to keep on going is so important. Because like you say, you take a lot of hits in this industry and you're not going to knock it out of the park every time. But as long as you keep on learning and keep going, I think that's the biggest takeaway from that. What would you say? No, I'd say I'd say 100%. You, you just have to kind of go into it knowing that this is uh, it's a marathon and you're going to get tired. You're going to get fatigued. You're going to start feeling run down. You're going to get the calls that, you know, your grease interceptors broke, your air conditioning went out. It's 100 degrees outside. The kitchen's flooded. I mean, these things are going to happen. They're going to happen on a daily basis. And it's just how well you receive them, how well you respond to them, and how good your team around you is that lets you have the capability to handle them. Absolutely. And I think so often, too, you see people who get hit with these issues, these challenges, and they lose their cool. And how important do you think it is just to kind of, you know, know that there's nothing you can do about the past, but just to keep your eyes focused on the future? I mean, it's it's crucial. It's really, again, like I said, to me, it's it's the most uh, prominent 
uh, characteristic of success in this business. If you listen to any of the great restaurateurs and any of the great entrepreneurs in this business, they'll tell you that not only did they have a a real ass whipping once or twice, but they continually get their asses whipped. You know, they'll lose a unit for every three they open and, you know, they'll, they'll have adversity literally every single step of the way. But again, um, it's that kind of stuff that makes you stronger. It's that kind of fire that, that makes your steel stronger. So you just have to kind of jump back in the kitchen and deal with the heat. No, oh, Charles, I love it, man. I really do. So, a question I'm trying to work into the podcast, uh, what's something that's really important to me, I think that is something we all need to learn is the why and the purposes of getting into this industry. So what is your why? What is your purpose? Why do you do what you do? You know, I think um, part of it is the pleasure and enjoyment you get of, of watching people eat and watching people have a good time and watching people sitting with their family and friends mm. and, and sharing, you know, a beer, or a glass of wine or a scotch or a drink they've never had or you know, me and my partner always laugh about it. We'll sit at style and we'll watch uh, that first customer's experience uh, when they come in and they take a bite of the burger and they kind of look at their friend or they look at the guy with them or the girl or whoever it is. And it's that silent nod that, wow, like this is so good that kind of makes you keep coming back for more. I mean, you're on a daily basis. If you do your job right, you're positively impacting literally hundreds and hundreds of people. So I think it's that that kind of silent uh, satisfaction of just having someone walk out and say that was one of the best experiences of my life. That's uh, definitely a motivating factor. Oh, man, I love it. I really do. And I think it's that thought. It can be so powerful to know that you have the ability. It's your job, your career to make people happy and to basically just create those memorable experiences. It's so rewarding. And I love it, man. I'm totally on board with what you're saying. So the next question I have for you is to kind of figure out, like, when you knew, like, what was, like, the pivotal point for you, Charles, when you knew that... Um, this industry was going to be more than just a, a job as a fry cook or whatever it was you're doing at the time. Like, is there a time you can go back to where you knew this was going to be your career? Can you bring us to that moment? Yeah, there is, Eric. There definitely is. There was um, a pretty defining moment that that kind of slapped me in the face and helped me make that realization. And it was actually about six months after just this major, major failure. The first, the first restaurant that I ever opened, it just crashed and burned for, for numerous reasons. Uh, but the funny thing about the whole story or the thing that kind of made me have that realization is I remember walking out of there the day the place closed and thinking to myself, I'll never, ever do this again. This was horrible. It was just a, a bad experience. It was, a, you know, like I said earlier, uh, it was that ass whipping on, on such a grand scale that you don't know how you're going to recover from it. And then I found myself about six months later uh, looking at a lease for a restaurant and being so excited about getting back into it that I realized that you can't not have a, just a huge amount of passion for something when it can cause you that much grief and you're clamoring to get back into it. Mm, yeah, I mean, <laughs> did you laugh at yourself when you realized this? Like when you, after going through that and to have this opportunity and say, what am I thinking? Like, what was that experience like? Oh, 100%. We, <laughs> we still joke about it. We sit around on a daily basis and say, what the hell are we thinking? But 
you know, we, we say that and then we run off to a different state the following day and, and sign a lease or sign another client who says, hey, I've got this restaurant. It's great. It's a good concept. We're making money, but we just can't seem to iron out the, the you know, the wrinkles and we need some help here. So, yeah, we laugh, definitely laugh at ourselves on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, and you have a really good story. I mean, not to dive too much into it, but, man, you talked earlier in the very beginning of this interview about taking punches and just having, like, that drive to keep on going. I mean, I don't know your full story, but I know that you came here. I know that you used a fake license to go to school. I mean, like, talk to us about your drive and about how that's helped you. Maybe this might come out in your it factors. I don't know, but... I, Eric, I didn't. I, is there a story? Did, does it say I had a fake li- license? Oh, you mean uh, I was too young to work at the nightclub? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So oh, I was like, damn. I was like, did I? I didn't know. Maybe I'd, I said I had a couple of scotches and wrote something crazy. But uh, no, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I started working at a at a nightclub when I was 17 with a fake driver's license because I was too young to actually get in and work. Uh, so most kids got a fake driver's license to go and buy beer. I had a fake driver's license at 17 to uh, run security at a nightclub. So oh, pretty funny that I was too young to be in the nightclub and I was kicking people out of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Though. But there's just that drive. And I, I really do feel like this is going to end up coming out somewhere else in the interview. So I'll just keep on going. Maybe it will come out now with your if factor. So Charles, if you could just like map out or share with us a handful of your if factors, your characteristics, your habits, your traits that you think most contribute to your success, what would they be? You know, I think that's kind of a, a twofold answer. I was thinking about it, and I think um, first, first would be the ability to create concepts and ideas that maybe are just a little bit ahead of the market. So, you know, to kind of look at where the market is, anticipate where the market's going, and create concepts that kind of work within that. So rather than, you know, being a couple years behind or even a couple days behind the market, uh, you're actually a little bit ahead. So basically you're coming out and other people are sitting going, oh, wow, that's a great concept, and they're copying us. So being first to market is always a huge, huge plus. Um, and I think that comes from you know a mixture of you know creativity and a little craziness where you sit and you come up with an idea, you come up with a concept, and people look at you like they're not really sure what you're thinking. And then a year later, people say, oh, now I get exactly what you're thinking. And then you have multiple concepts copying you, which, you know, the imitations is sincerest form of flattery. So oh, you feel yeah. good, right? When you start seeing other people popping up all around you with ideas that look like they basically just stamped your idea onto a uh, uh, concrete box and changed the name. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, that's a, a big, uh, big plus. And the other thing I think is just the ability to multitask uh, and bring multiple projects and uh, multiple ideas to fruition at the same time. Um, you know, kind of like you, you alluded to at the beginning, it's a lot of projects and that's a lot of stuff going on. And the only way that's even possible is just, again, to be able to kind of multitask on multiple projects at the same time. And then just having the team that helps you and the team behind you to enable you to keep all of the balls in there, because there is a point where you get to, uh, it's like that little tipping point where it's not as much work as, you know, giving away some secrets here, but not as much work as you would think to open two locations rather than just one. Um, and there's a point where just on the kind of economies of, uh, 
uh, labor, um, it, it almost is helpful to have multiple people working on multiple projects. So I think it's kind of a combination of both of those things. Again, being able to foresee where the market's going and then being able to multitask. And I think the, the idea is really to kind of you know, especially in the beginning is to be able to portray that, that you're, you're maybe bigger than you are, you know, like a, like a puffer fish when another fish comes to eat it, blows itself up. So people say, oh, let me stay away from it a little bit. And I think in the beginning, I have to say it, I don't want to cut you off, but perception is reality, man. If you perceive yourself as being something great and bigger than, you know, you are, then you will be great. You will grow. You will get bigger and greater. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. No, and I, I agree. And look, I think, you know, there's so much to that in the beginning. You know, again, especially in the beginning when you're first starting out, you have one unit and the unit's doing pretty well. And you're sitting there saying, how do I get another unit? How do I get people to, to trust me? How do I get people to understand that I know what I'm doing and this is just the beginning? And that's where I think, you know, that ability to to instill confidence in people, to have them believe in what you're doing, from to believe in your vision, for them to, you know, really bet on you as a winning horse. That's where it's really important. As you go a little bit further now for us, uh, we have enough projects where we, you know, thankfully um, can be a lot more selective and we can really look at these projects that we're developing right now and say, well, this is incredible, this is incredible, you know, this one not so much, we'll pass on it. But definitely in the beginning, um, the ability to to really uh, kind of explain to people who you are and what you are and why they should roll with you is is just super important. Oh wow, yeah, and I think that's just the importance of having your vision and knowing your vision too. So many people do things because they know they like it, like they love the industry, and they're so reactive. But when you take the time to really map out your vision so you can share it with other people, that's so valuable, and that's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Awesome. So just to summarize some of the things I wrote down here is, I mean, um, you don't chase trends, man. You are a trendsetter, and I think that's so important to take a risk, to take a chance, to have a vision, and don't try to copy something, but try to be copied. Try to be ahead of the pack. Um, And then you just are great at multitasking, which is huge. And please do remind me to uh, tap into your your knowledge a little bit more when it comes to technology and maybe some of the tools you're using or leveraging to stay organized. I think you might have some great advice for us there. Sure. And then building teams is another huge thing. You're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Absolutely. Um, So awesome it factors. And I want to add one more it factor. Just when I was reading um, and doing my research on you to, uh, you know, see if you'd be a good fit for the show. And, man, were you ever a good fit for the show? But um, your determinism, like, you just go. You're a workhorse, man. Like, when you were in college, you were working two jobs. Did I read that right? Yeah, working two jobs and graduated in three years. Yeah, so then, it's same same mechanism back then. <laughs> yeah, then you, you got in your pickup truck. You were in Tallahassee. You drove across the country um, to attend law school. And again, you were just working all the time. You didn't have a job. You started at the bottom, and you just worked your way up, man. And you just audacious, man. And it just you just don't stop going. It's, and yeah. I think that is something that needs to be pointed out. Yeah, and, you know, while you're on that subject, Eric, it's funny because a lot of times, you know, I have a lot of employees now, and they'll they'll say to me, you know, we know you started at the bottom, and this will be bussers and and line cooks, and, you know, I always tell them the same thing. I say, guys, there's not literally not a job in this restaurant I didn't do, so – 
like, let me start by prefacing the whole conversation by saying, I understand what you're doing. I understand what you're going through. I understand the long hours. I understand the grease burns. I understand the cuts and the lacerations all over your fingers. I get it. You know, and all I can say is, um, you, you can't deny the work. If, if I'm in there and I'm working and someone wants to go home and I say, guys, I'll stay an extra two hours or one of the other line cooks gets sick and I say, I'll do the shift so the manager doesn't have to come back and fry. I'm not going to say the first time you do it or the second or the fifth or the tenth time you do it, someone's going to notice. And you might actually have a manager that never notices. But the point is, at some point in time, you will have a manager that notices. You will have an owner that notices. And that's what happened to me. Just a couple years of the same grind, the same grind, and always being the guy that says, I'll pick up the extra shift. I'll pick up the extra work. No, I don't know how to dishwash, but I'm sure I can figure it out. It was just that mentality that let people say, okay, they they felt confident in your ability and they gave you more responsibility and more responsibility and more responsibility. And before you knew it, you were kind of absentee running the show for for everybody. This is awesome. I mean, the words that are coming out of your mouth right now remind me so much of a book I just finished called The Compound Effect. It's an amazing book of just exactly what you're saying. And if you want to learn more, I mean, I think if you're listening to this right now and if, if you're getting on board with what Charles is saying, you have to check out that book because it's just putting in that little extra all the time. And over time, those little bits of extra add up and they make a big difference. Um, and I think you're just living proof of that. And I, I'm happy to make an example of you, man. It's awesome. Thanks. So, yeah, uh, let's find out now a time where this it factor, one of these it factors that you share with us is really shown through. Can you share a specific story with us, Charles? Sure, sure. I mean, I think more even in a specific story, I can just kind of fill you in in the last year. So in the last year, we've opened the Stout in Louisville with the second Stout Louisville following closely behind it. We've broken ground on the Stout in Brentwood. Uh, We've opened a 20,000-square-foot microbrewery in downtown Los Angeles. We've opened a coffee shop. We've opened an ultra lounge in Koreatown. And now we're getting ready to embark on this really just gregarious, fun project for this large coffee shop bakery in uh, Long Beach. So I think just the the kind of uh, the magnitude of what we've done, again, as a small company, it's probably the best a uh, big overall kind of macro view of, of that it factor, right? So I think it's the best way to say, look, here was the ability to multitask and, and bring these multiple concepts to fruition um, and also the ability to look at the changing markets and say, hey, I know this is going here. I know this neighborhood, even though people are looking at it right now and they're saying it's not the best neighborhood, it's not the greatest neighborhood, but it's got the potential to be the greatest neighborhood. So I think it's, again, it's a it's a combination of all of that, not just um, seeing the trends in the actual restaurant industry, but even as far as seeing the trends in the neighborhoods and, and you know, going random stuff, Eric, like going down to your local planning office in your local city hall and finding out what developers are doing projects where, because you might be sitting and looking at a uh, location in Midtown or Uptown or Downtown or wherever your specific town is, and you go, well, there's nothing going on down here, but you might be literally looking at the tip of the iceberg. You Mm -hmm. could go down and spend 20 minutes at your local planning office and say to yourself, good Lord, every developer and their mother is coming down here right now. And I just found, you know, this LLC is doing a restaurant down there. And then you go and track that LLC. 
LLC and you find it's one of these huge restaurant groups. And then you can kind of follow the trend, but Mm -hmm. also be ahead of the trend because then you go and you go, all right, these guys are major, major players. They're not going to this neighborhood without putting a lot of time and a lot of research into it. So I think, again, like all of these little things, are little bits of knowledge that someone out there going, I want to open a restaurant can go, oh, I never thought about going to the planning office. I never Mm -hmm. thought about pulling up that ABC posting to find out who those guys really are. I never thought about this. I never thought about that. So I think that's kind of the macro view of of what's making us successful Mm. right now. Wow, man, that's awesome. Great advice. And um, you talked to us about how this it factor of multitasking and having that macro view has really helped you. Now talk to us about a time, Charles, where you just failed hard, man, and you just landed on your backside. And then tell us how you got back up and what you learned from that failure. So I think I, yeah, I kind of spoke on it super briefly before, but it was my first restaurant. It was a sprawling 10,000 square foot sports bar in downtown LA. It was a complete beast. We put tons of money into it. We were super, super excited about it. It was really, um, to be, to be very blunt and honest, it was really next generation sports bar. At the time we built it, it was the biggest audiovisual system west of Las Vegas. It was just we had a we had a literal sports wall. I mean it looked like it looked like really next level stuff. And uh we get in there, we open, business was a little slow, we were figuring it out, we were promoting, we were we were doing everything that we should have been doing. And finally about a year in we we basically turned the whole thing around and I remember sitting, we had our first month profit, we had our second month profit, we were all congratulating ourselves, we were all very proud of what we had done. And um, without getting too in-depth to the story, we found out that our landlord or our sub-landlord who had subleased the property to us had never paid the rent that we were paying to him through to the landlord. So we were served with an eviction notice and a massive bill for the past year plus of rent that we had absolutely no way of paying uh, resulted in this this crazy just involved legal issue back and forth with multiple parties and the truth was at that point in time it was such a fledgling business that we just couldn't the business couldn't survive and facilitate this assault on it Mm. and we weren't in a position at that point in time to absolve or absorb that loss and keep the business moving so basically, like I said, pretty much everything we had, everything I had into this business, a year of work, just just pulling every, out of every stop, doing doing literally, you know, when people talk about 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, I mean, we lived down there and uh, it just all blew up in our face, um, oh like loss, a complete loss of everything, ensuing legal battles and one of those ones where you're sitting looking at it and you're going, I have no idea how to get out of this. I just I can't even contemplate at this point the exit strategy here because there really wasn't one. Um, but again, like I said, it was just back to that mentality that this is a hard hit, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the hardest hit I ever take. And, you know, it's it, you know, there's all these old quotes that I love. You know, you read these quotes about. You know, the hotter the fire, the stronger the steel and, and fire, you know, uh, shatters glass, <laughs> but forges steel. And you kind of look through all this stuff and you say, this, at this point, as crazy as it sounds, I have two options. I have option A to run and crawl in a hole or I have option B, which is to figure it out and, 
you know, just, just grind away and gear up and, and do whatever you have to do to, to make it work. So I never liked the idea of crawling into a hole. So I was left with one option. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm, I was like cringing listening to you like tell that story because I can only imagine what it would be like to pour so much of yourself into something, to do everything right, and then to have something like that happen to you where you're literally up against this massive wall and there's nothing you can do to get over it. And it's not your fault. I mean, that must have been so wow. But you like you kept your eyes on the future, and I think that's the lesson to take away is that you can't do anything about it. If there's nothing you can do, all you can do is move on and continue to you know grow. But I mean, what did you do wrong? Like, if you could like narrow it down to one failure, like what would you have done differently? Like, what was your biggest takeaway from this? You know, my biggest takeaway from that was was pretty clear. It's uh, and and you hear this adage too, right? When they say doctors are the worst about their own health, where they say, you know, I'm fine because I'm a doctor and I'll figure it out, and mm. they never go to the doctor. And I think it was the exact same thing with us. You know, coming from a legal background, we kind of walked into this, and we did a lot of handshaking and a lot of pleasantries over dinner and you know i definitely and this is some advice i would give to to you know all up and coming restaurateurs don't over lawyer things because over lawyering kills deals right mm-hmm. if, if if i sit there and, and i've got a contract and i redline it and i start getting specific over every single detail no one's ever going to want to do business with me because I'll, it just it burdens the whole process but I think you have to qualify that statement by saying there's got to be a, this, this modicum, right, this minimum level of, of paperwork and protection that you do put in place. And we just really didn't. We really went into it with a, a lot of handshakes and a lot of goodwill and really thinking that um, everybody had our best interests at heart. And, and in retrospect, I don't even look at it and think that anybody had ill will towards us necessarily. I just think everybody has their own problems and our own motivations. And, you know, we just really could have done a much better job of protecting ourselves. So it wasn't anybody else's problem. It was purely ours. So the, it sounds like you were making your payments. Was the person, the, the, uh, sub, um, what, the, the, so basically, the sub landlord. Yeah. So the so, yeah. So he was basically taking our payments and not passing them on to the landlord. Is he still alive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I actually have. I don't want to say a, a great relationship with them, but I actually did speak with them after it. And you know, again, like I said. It's one of those things where, and I tell restaurateurs this all the time, I say, if you leave town for six months and your restaurant falls apart, if you're not there, if you're not conscious, if you're not paying attention, that really at the end of the day, you can't blame the manager who stole from you. You can't blame the bartender who stole from you. You really have to look in the mirror and take full responsibility for it. And and that's, yeah. And that's what I really felt at the end of the day. You know, I don't, I don't know what his motivations were. I don't know what was going on with him and the landlord's actual relationship. I, I don't know anything. All I know is if I had done, um, what if we had done what we needed to do and we had been uh, more vigilant, it really wouldn't matter what his motivations were. So at the end of the day, you know, passing the buck on to other people for, for doing things that we don't understand their motivations, I just, I just don't do it. So I look at it now and I think, you know, 
take responsibility for everything you do, take responsibility for the positives as well as the negatives and, and protect yourself without overburdening and, and grossly um, hindering the deal. Awesome stuff, man. Great, man. You've been so awesome this first half of the interview, crushing it, uh, giving us amazing advice. We're going to dive into the speed round now where you're just going to drop restaurant bombs of knowledge on us. Are you ready? Let's do it. I'm ready to go. <laughs> the first question I have for you is what is your advice for getting that initial capital to open your own restaurant? Okay, awesome. That's a great question. I get asked it all the time. Um, super simple advice for that. Take the low-hanging fruit, right? So you've got friends, you've got family members, you've got people that trust you. You've got people saying, hey, man, I've got 10000 bucks. I've got this. I've got that. I think you look at it, you figure out obviously how much money you need. If it's round numbers, a hundred thousand bucks, and you're saying, I only want to sell 10 shares at 10,000 bucks. But one of your buddies comes along and says, Hey man, I just want to be a part of you and what you're doing. Take 5,000 bucks, take 2000 bucks, take some money to put yourself on the map because a, no one wants to be the first money in. So if you have someone that's saying, Hey man, I trust you. I'll be the first money in you take that first money because then the next person says, have you raised money? And you say, yeah. And they're no longer the first money in. Mm -hmm. So I think the key with that always is you've got family, you've got friends, you take that low hanging fruit, you get yourself on the map and you get the ball rolling because uh, once the ball's rolling, it gets momentum. I mean, once people are in there, once you've signed a lease, once the hammers are swinging, once, you know, the liquor license is in process, that's where people start getting excited because then they actually have the vision to go, oh, wow, I see what he's doing. But you've got to get that initial push, right? You've got to get that wheel turning. Even if it's turning super slow, people need to see movement to get inspired. I love it. Great advice. I think that's the first time somebody's come at it with that angle. So awesome. Um, what advice do you have for hiring good people, Charles? So hiring good people have, again, super, super simple advice. And obviously at a certain point and at a simple list, certain growth rate, you can no longer do this. But I think one of the most important things to do is to do the interviews yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds crazy if I've got 270 employees and I can't even honestly sit here and tell you I do all the interviews myself. But I definitely try to be present in as many of those interviews as I can. And I definitely try to have some kind of impact and influence on the person as they're sitting there. I don't think there's, there's any um, replacement for being able to sit across the table from someone and spending seven to ten minutes and looking in their eyes and trying to figure out what their motivation is. You know, is this person just trying to work through the next two years of school? Which, if that's the case, that's wonderful. I did it. You know, a lot of us did it. But that guy may or may not be as valuable as, as the next guy who's sitting there with two kids and wants a stable job and is willing to put in 16 hours a day. So I think the real key is to be able to sit and do these interviews yourself and figure out what people's motivations are, what they want, and make sure they're aligned with yours. Oh, I love it, man. I think that's the first time somebody's ever said, uh, look at the motives. I mean, we always talk about hiring attitude and personality um, and the character, but really, what are their motives? I think that's the first time that's been asked. So great stuff. Um, when you find these people who are aligned with what you're trying to do and they have the right motives, what do you do to keep them on your team, Charles? 
So I think loyalty breeds loyalty, first of all. So I think you get these people in there and they're good and you treat them right. And one of the huge parts of treating them right is pay. Look, at the end of the day, we're all in this business to make money um, at the end of the day. And if you take, you know, you take these historical examples, you take Henry Ford and you look at what he did. He literally doubled the, the weekly salary for these employees. And what happened? He got loyalty. He got hard work. He got dedication as company. So I think you have to look at that and you go, okay, let me pay these guys a little more. Let me be a little better to them. And then four months from now, I, I'm not going to have them coming up to me saying, hey, man, I took another job. And then I've got to spend eight weeks training someone at that same position. Whereas if I just paid them a little more, been a little more understanding of what they're doing, been a little more cognizant of their issues and mm. their job and their job performance. So I think at the end of the day, pay pays a big motivator. I think you find loyalty and you pay the person for their loyalty. I love it, man. Loyalty. Do you say loyalty breeds loyalty? Yeah. Or creates loyalty. Yeah. Loyalty breeds loyalty. I love it, man. Great stuff. Um, so let's talk about resources. You sound like you're a well-read person, well-educated. I mean, is there one book that you would say is a must-read, whether it's a business book or a hospitality book, um, that is a must-read for anybody getting into this industry? There, you know, there is, man. So I think, you know, there's a book that I've been reading. Um, I read it. I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, there's a book I just read called The Slight Edge, which mm. I absolutely loved. And it's really about kind of what we touched on earlier. It's about incremental um, changes and incremental variations in your day that kind of looked at um, – looked at from a daily basis mean absolutely nothing, but looked at over the span of one year and three years and five years is really massive. Um, another book that I love was the Starbucks book. I love it. I think it was one of those things that you read and you go, there's a reason Starbucks was so successful. There's a reason why they're dotting the, literally dotting the world. They took a, a product. They, they brought consistency to the product. They brought... Um, a, a reasonable price to the product. They brought an environment that was conducive to people wanting to spend time there. So I think it was just, that's just a model that kind of shows people what you should be striving for. So I love the Starbucks book. Um, the other book I love was a book called The Purple Cow, which is a marketing oh, book yeah, that I absolutely, Gordon. yeah, exactly. And yeah. I absolutely love that because it's just, it's one of those books you read and after you read it, you just go, I get it. Like, this, this totally, totally makes sense. So those are three books that I think uh, everybody should read, uh, restaurateur or otherwise, entrepreneur. But I think they're they're very, very applicable to uh, us restaurateurs. Dude, you're just like killing it with like the first time mentions today. I don't think uh, – I, I think the Starbucks book was mentioned, but the Slight Edge has not been mentioned. Neither has uh, is the Purple Cow by Seth Godin. Uh, both – Awesome books, uh, and it's funny because I was just talking about the compound effect, which was written by Darren Hardy, and he was a mentor e of Jeff Jeff Olson, who was the author of The Slight Edge. So right. awesome that you mentioned that. Um, I have not read The Slight Edge yet, but I, it's on my hit list. So yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about with this compounding effect. I mean, it's 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 right there, and it's uh, it's awesome. I mean, it will change the day after you read it. It will change your life. Yeah, man. That's great advice, man. Awesome stuff. So um, let's talk a little bit about 
marketing. I mean, you had mentioned uh, Purple Cow by Seth Godin there. What I mean, is your marketing advice coming from that book, or do you have your own marketing advice you want to share with us? Um, you know, I think my marketing advice is is just accumulated again through a lot of reading and a lot of restaurants and a lot of or my marketing knowledge, a lot of reading, a lot of restaurants, a lot of kind of studying places. You know, you go in and you, you I'll give you a, like a really funny example. You go in at Pinkberry and you uh, you order uh, ice cream at Pinkberry or yogurt at Pinkberry. And uh, I actually did a little research on this and found out if you watch, or they should, most of the time they do, when they give you the yogurt at Pinkberry, they hand it to you in both hands. And it's almost like a gesture of, of goodwill that they're imparting something very valuable to you. And it's something that's so almost um, insignificant in, in its actual visual, but there's something subconsciously very compelling about it. It's, it's like this, this gesture of honor and, and respect and look at what I'm imparting upon you. So I think my best marketing advice is to pay attention to everybody that is doing a good job. Like walk into Starbucks and don't walk into Starbucks and say, uh, yeah, man, let me get a tall latte and, and walk out. Walk into Starbucks and watch the system that's in place in Starbucks. And walk in, I'll give you another incredible marketing um, uh, company is In-N-Out. Walk into In-N-Out, order a burger, order fries, and just watch the machine that, that kind of takes place and just look at the marketing of everything from the branding in there to the employees to the experience to the, you know, how quickly everything comes out. Because in as much as these are not standard marketing, right, it's not a, the Internet, it's not uh, website advertisement, it's not Facebook. It's really the most impactful marketing there is because it's captive audience marketing. I'm already in in and out So if my experience in in, in and out is a good, positive experience, that's the most successful marketing marketing they could ever do because I oh, walk yeah. out of there and I go hell yeah I'm going back I mean people ask me all the time you know you own stout burgers and it's a great brand of blah 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 what else do you like and my answer is always the same in and out in and out is like the, the biggest home run in the world it's a phenomenal product it's super high quality they treat their uh, consumers extremely well they treat their employees extremely well they have one of the highest levels of job satisfaction in the entire restaurant industry so there's your marketing your marketing is an incredible product with incredible branding with incredible customer satisfaction and incredible employee satisfaction satisfaction oh my god man you're just killing it today and <laughs> i mean i sometimes these interviews go a little bit long and i just i just accept it because man you're just giving us so much advice there's no way i'm gonna stop you uh, i hope you have enough time no man i'm, I'm here <laughs> i'm right. here for you awesome so um i mean one thing i want to point out that really just stuck out to me in, in your advice was um just like the low road and how simple something as you know just handing somebody a cup with two hands and this industry is so highly um reliant on social intelligence and just there's the high road which is like your verbal communication of you know what you're saying to somebody and then like something like 56% of all communication is the low road, which is the stuff you don't even notice, like you said, and that's body language and the little sure. things you do. But at the same time, we talk about that in four walls marketing where everything you do to market your restaurant happens right there. And it's those little subtleties like handing somebody something with two hands. We had Oliver Camacho on the show a few weeks back and he was talking about how he trains his people. He's with, he just got hired with Boca restaurant group uh, as a general manager and 
just like directing people to the bathroom and using body language to communicate with people and just facing people like the little subtlest things you can do i'm pumped up man <laughs> absolutely man it, and, and just kind of like while you're on that i went into a, a competitive yogurt place you know right after pinkberry and i ordered my yogurt and they basically slid it across the counter to me which again <laughs> you know like i said that kind of made me sit there and go wow okay i i get it i get now i really get it so yeah body language um so how did you, know, you just, feel when they said that that to you you know it made me never want to go back which whoa is dude really that's funny. my food careful yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean so but no not to pinkberry i go back i actually yeah, yeah. love all of them and I, yeah. I eat too much yogurt but you know you start noticing these little things where you go now i'll go back to pinkberry because there's there, there's so much more thought into this product mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's just again just be conscious of everybody that's around you i mean you have the literal the ability to educate yourself on every single corner yeah, as a restaurateur awesome man i love it great advice so let's talk a little bit about technology one of the the goals of this podcast is to funnel information to one spot to to share tools and technologies that are helping you be more efficient more effective more profitable so what are you using in your restaurants that you've really seen a return on investment with which is worth looking into Right, right. Well, we have the standard, you know, your 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 POS programs. You know, we have uh, Micros, and then we have Restaurant Magic, which is really good analytically. Uh, they give you a lot of information. They, you know, you can really sit there and you can break down times and you can break down percentages of products sold at certain times. And you know, there's a lot of really good stuff there. And then there's look, there's there's so many technological advancements um, and programs. And if you go if you go to one of the restaurant um, conventions in Las Vegas or Anaheim or one of these, you'll literally be bombarded. I actually have one that I kind of wanted to talk to you about because um, it's something that's interesting for me that I've really tried to pay attention to over the, the last year, year and a half, and it's, it's actually Yelp. Now, I have the biggest love-hate relationship with Yelp in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I, I just... I. I pull up reviews sometimes. I know they're fake, and it just makes me want to reach through the computer and strangle whoever didn't flag that review, right? Mm -hmm. But what I've realized with that is, in as much as it can really damage your business, because it really can, I think there's so much information can be gleaned by it. So I feel like if you take, you know, if you're a restaurateur and you take Yelp, you know, and this is just kind of some more advice for someone to look at. Take that Yelp, you know, take your 50 reviews, take the take 10% of the bad ones out because they're fake and they're your competitors. Take 10% of the good ones out because it's your wife and your brother. And then take that 80% in the middle and really listen to your customer. I mean, so really sit and review them. And, and if your customer's sitting there and they're saying, you know, um, service wasn't quite right we had to wave down the waitress we had to do this and this and this you really got to look at it and listen not take it personally but take it as like wow that's like that's like a secret shopper and those secret shoppers cost a lot of money and your secret shoppers are going to come in and half the time the the, the feedback that you're going to get from a secret shopper isn't even as good as what you're going to get from these yelp guys because 
guys and girls, because at the end of the day now, our consumer is so savvy, right? Everybody mm-hmm. watches Food Network. Everybody watches Cooking Channel. Everybody knows what craft beer is. Everybody knows what third wave coffee is. So you've got, you've really got this, this generation and it's incredible how young it is now. You're talking about 13 year olds coming in and knowing about single origin coffees and, and incredible, incredible stuff. So you've got this generation um, of, of young kids that are on a whole other level. And then you've got this generation of, of older people, maybe my mom and a little younger, you know, my dad, this, this generation that now has become very computer savvy and is doing the same thing. So you've got this incredible broad spectrum of, of resources and information that, again, I think if you take it and you cut the bottom 10 and the top 10 out, that to me is is been a real game changer in, in technology because it's allowed me to really connect with consumers in a way that would have cost me thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of dollars otherwise. Mm. Yeah, man. No, real interesting, great advice. I think it's the first time anybody's ever gone there. Um, but I also want to tap into your knowledge because you're not just a restaurateur. I mean, you're an entrepreneur and there's a lot of you know crazy things happening in your life, a lot of busyness going on. So how do you manage it all? Are you using any tools to manage that busy life cycle to stay organized or yeah. talk to us about that? Yeah, man. So, so you know, obviously, I'm I'm pretty up on the phones and the smartphones, and uh, I carry two of them, and everybody laughs at me about it. And I actually had three of them, and then I got rid of one because I just realized that three phones was was just ludicrous. So, you know, <laughs> I utilized you know the Google calendars and and you know a couple of the different date specific. Uh, project managers. Um, but again, for me, technology wise, it's, it's the calendars. It's making sure my calendars are done right. Because again, it's just, there's only 24 hours in a day, 1440 minutes. I really, really have to judge and utilize and, and work with each one of those minutes. Well, so that's where to me, it just goes back to my team, making sure my team is up to date on the calendar, making sure that ta- the calendar is updated, making sure our programs across our, our, you know, again, our Google, we just, we, you tried a bunch of different ones and we just always end up back with Google, Google calendar. So it just, it's easy to work with. It's right there when I pop open my internet. So I, again, I don't really have any, any, really, really incredible technological um, inventions that help from that perspective. It's really just the, the advent and the integration of the calendars across the smartphones that allow me and my team to really utilize every single minute and make the most of, of every single 24-hour, 1,440-minute day. Oh, man, I 100% agree with you. I would be lost if I didn't have my Google Calendar and my iOS Calendar. And they all integrate, like you say, like littlest things, like in the morning, like just having a routine. And I have my routine, like alerts going off. So if I'm sitting at my computer reading emails or I have my phone on me, like the littlest things, like just to create habits. Like I have an alert to remind me to drink two glasses of water in the morning. And then from there to like write in my journal and then to uh, reply to emails. Like, so I always stay focused and it just sounds silly, but like, you know, do you really need a alert to remind you to drink your water? But like little things like that, like will help you, you know, and get you into a system and a cycle. And those routines are so important. 
Absolutely, man. And the other thing you'll notice is the busier you get, really the more and more reliant on it you are. You know, someone will call me and say, hey, man, can you get on a call tomorrow at 12 o'clock? And my gut reaction is to go, oh, hell yeah, I'll be on a call. And you're like, wait. <laughs> exactly. And then I go, hold up, hold up. And then I go back and I pull up, pull up my calendar and, you know, there'll be a tentative meeting and I'll hit my assistant or one of my guys and say, hey, what's going on with this? And he'll say, oh, it's not been confirmed yet. So I can go back and go, hey, yeah. I can do this. And yeah, it's, it's really the only way business can be done. And it's, it's something that I didn't really utilize again up until probably about a year ago. I was one of those guys that I just stuck everything in my head and it worked well up to a certain <laughs> There's so point. much added stress though. Like, yeah, man, and it just it is. builds up. And honestly, I mean, I have to be honest, sometimes I wake up and I look at my calendar and the first thing I say to myself is, who am I talking to today? Like, I don't even know. But if I didn't have that calendar there, I mean, it just makes it so easy. And sometimes I interview like six people in a day. Um, Absolutely. And not to have to remember that is just like such a relief. And uh, I think with restaurant owners, there's so many things you have to do every day. If you just committed and got in the habit of simply just writing it down on your phone and just getting it in the calendar with an alert like it makes you so effective and so efficient. It's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So if you could just give us one piece of business advice, if you could go back in time and pretend they're giving yourself one piece of business advice, what would it be? So I think it, we touched on this earlier again. I think you really, really, as restaurateurs, you have to be not only conscious of trends, but again, conscious of what's going to be trending. So I think if I could go back five years from now, I would really say stop thinking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day and even the next year and start thinking in 2010 about 2015 and start thinking about farm to table and start thinking about, you know, the craft beer movement and 2012 say, hey, start thinking about um, the brown liquors and, and the bourbons and the whiskeys and where this is all going to fit in. And, and keep in mind that these, these things take 8, 10, 12 years to mature. So what's your plan with these whiskeys moving forward? How much of your business is going to be built on these? Keep in mind that the craft beer business is, is going in this direction. How much of your business, uh, even down to uh, funny stuff, Eric, that sounds where you would go, well, of course, it's hamburgers. Hamburgers are always going to be around. It's meat. It's a staple of the American culture, right? But, you know, you got to sit there and look at it and go, there's droughts. There, there's meat prices rising. There's dairy issues, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the really, really important thing I would, I would tell someone is be aware not only of what's trending right now, but really try to be conscious on a, on a whole as, as what's happening in the next five to ten years. And that's why to me... Um, the coffee business is so exciting because as much as, you know, someone would look at it and say, this is a saturated business, you're, you're going to battle Starbucks and coffee bean and Pete's and these other guys. I mean, my kind of response to that would be, you know what, you're right. It is a saturated business, but let's look at statistically again this big picture view let's get a mile above the coffee business or let's go to space and look at the world from a coffee perspective right you've got the united states that's the largest consumer of coffee uh, i believe the largest consumer of coffee in the world but if you look at the per capita consumption it's actually tiny compared to these other countries, which to me, that's a really, really interesting statistic, right? To me, that means that we're consuming a lot of coffee, but we're not consuming anywhere near the amount of coffee that other countries do per person. Mm -hmm. So I look at it and I go, I think there's still a lot of growth here. And then I look at coffee as a whole and I say, 
we're harvesting and we're growing and it's positive and we're creating jobs and then we're going to export the coffee to here and there's going to be job creation there and then we're going to get the coffee here and we're going to roast it and then there's going to be job creation here then we're going to distribute it and it's going to go on UPS and FedEx and there's job creation there and wow, it, you yeah. know coffee's a natural uh, the, the acidity in it is a natural pesticide so we're not spraying gallons of pesticide all over it so I try to look at it and say you know this is this is not only trending but when you're talking about a commodity that's the second largest commodity now after oil, you're talking about something that's probably fairly insulated for the next couple of years in terms of growth. Now, obviously, you got to deal with environmental changes and, and temperate changes and fluctuating climates and, and natural disasters. But, you know, you have to bet the horse somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I look at that and I go, this to me makes sense right now. And then look at these other trends, you know, juicing is a huge trend. And, you know, you look at that and you say, well, where's juicing going to be in one year and three years and five years? And I just watched a a TV show and it was called The Men Who Built America. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's on like Rockefeller and Carnegie and and J.P. Morgan. And one of the really interesting quotes on that was, I think it was Donnie Deutsch, but it might even been Donald Trump that said it. But they said that the. The factor that separated these guys from everybody else was they were able to look and see a decade into the future, not a not a week, not a year, not five years, not really susceptible to these crazy fluctuations, you know, your stock market fluctuations and your, you know, all these things that go up and down that you go, oh, my God, the world's ending. They would really look at it and go. Where's the railroads going to be in 10 years? Where's kerosene going to be in 10 years? Where's gasoline going to be in 10 years? Where's oil? Where's this? Where's, you know, Carnegie Steel? And they were able to make decisions and and definitive movements based on where they saw stuff in 10 years. So that that would be my advice. It would be to really take a look at where where things are going, where food's going, where, you know, soy's going. I just saw Google is um, (laughs) developing – like fake meat they're developing i don't want to say fake because that's definitely not the right terminology but they're developing synthetic meat so what does that mean for the the taco industry right i know the the burger industry what does it mean what does google synthetic mean for for all of us i mean for me what i'm hearing is don't go chasing trends be a trend setter create trends and i think that's a lot of time people they see a trend and they go and they try to open like 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 you said like a yogurt stand and by the time they get everything up and going like the next trend is out so like don't be that person that that goes and chases trends awesome stuff i mean if there was one question i could have asked you charles what would it be one question you could well i think i kind of just answered that i think if there's one question you could ask me it would be where do i see myself in five years and where do i see myself in 10 years and what what kind of dictates where I'm going. So if, if for subsequent people who come in and do this interview, I'd want to know what are you doing in five years and where do you see yourself and what's motivating that, um, that decision that you see yourself opening 50 restaurants and why. And it might be, you might kind of be grilling these guys because if they say, I'm going to open 50 restaurants, if you said to me, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, well, I see myself with 50 stouts. And then that would pose a question, are you concerned about beef? Are you concerned about this industry? Are you concerned about the drought? Are you concerned about this? So I think a great question would be, you know, to me, where do you see your business in five years? And where do you see your business in 10 years? And 
and how do you plan for for inevitable changes and and everything that that will fluctuate over the course of the next decade and uh, I mean did you kind of answer that question already with the coffee industry is that what you're you know i i I really didn't, didn't, right? So I think I answered it and that I think it's a great place to be. Um, but I think the, the more general thing, again, is just, again, take a, take a really good look at what's around you. Take a really good look at what's working. Keep your eye on CNN.com and, and read about Google Synthetic Meat. Keep your eye on uh, commodity trading and coffee. Keep your eye on the, the beef industry and where it's going. Keep your eye on the dairy market and where it's going. Keep your eye on on all of these things and really just, again, I, I would say my answer to that question, if it was posed to me, was try to just be as informed as I can because I don't really know what's going to happen in five years and I don't have a crystal ball, but I think I can derive enough information from the resources that are around us to make an educated decision. So I think, you you know, you look at it and again, to me, the, the best resource for all of our rest, all of us restaurateurs are the businesses that we walk into every single day. Look at them, look and see what's working, look and see what's not working. Take someone that's crushing it and say, wow, these guys are crushing it, but I bet if you walk in there, you could figure out something that they could do better and then figure out how to implement that. So that, mm. that would be a good question to me. Like, where, where are you going to be in five years? Where are you going to be in 10 years? And what's motivating that change and, and why? Awesome. Great stuff. I like it. Um, and I think you kind of, I mean... I usually ask my guests to answer it, but I feel like you kind of did there. I mean, that's – I don't want you to give away your secrets. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there are no secrets, you know, I, I, and I tell people – people ask me that all the time. Specifically with Stout, for example, they say, hey, what's the secret? What's the secret? And I tell people, look, there. the truth is at the end of the day, there is no secret. It's, it's a high, high-quality burger with extremely high-quality ingredients. Um, that was really researched and put together in a manner that that really um, just created this culinary experience that you can't make for yourself at home for 13 bucks. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, you can go home and make this exact burger. Only difference is going to take you four hours to caramelize and reduce the onions, and it's going to cost you 22 bucks. So just come eat it at my place. Awesome. So man. you know, so the secret I think is there's no secrets. Just quality product, good customer service, and really observe everybody and everything around you. Wow, awesome stuff. Man, Charles, you've been awesome. Incredible guest. Uh, we're going to wrap it up now. We wrap up every episode by having you call somebody out. Who's one indie restaurant professional you admire and think would make a great guest on the show? Cool. Um, there's so many guys in Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles is this, like, it really is this this pioneering city where, where people are coming out with great ideas and, and they're, they're executing them. Uh, I have a friend who I really like. He's uh, he's had three or four really good restaurants in town, and now he's started and growing uh, a group of fresh juice juiceries. And I think he's doing them in a really interesting way that I really like. Uh, it's called Orchard Flats, and his name's Curtis. Uh, he's a he's just a smart guy. He's actually also a, a lawyer or a former lawyer, and um, just a smart guy ahead of the curve and really. Um, I think he's doing something with a business that is somewhat saturated, but he's doing it in ways and manners that hasn't been done and creating an experience that I, that I really like. Yeah. I love it. So it's, it's Travis, you said with orchard flats. 
Curtis, C-U-R-T-I-S. Curtis, look out, man. I'm coming after you. And Charles, let everybody at home know how they can connect with you. Uh, if they want to pick up a conversation, if they want to ask you some questions, if they got your interest, maybe they want to come work for you out in Los Angeles. How can we connect? Great. Yeah, the easiest way, super, super simple, just Charles at CharlesLew.com. So C-H-A-R-L-E-S at CharlesLew.com. And your website? CharlesLew.com. Beautiful. I'll have all those links right there in the show notes. Charles, man, you were so great. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you, my man. I really appreciate it. It was a great time. Thanks. Cheers, man. My Talk honor. soon. Bye. Thanks, man. Charles Lou, thank you for coming on the show, man. You were such a great guest. There was some awesome advice in this episode on how not to be a trend chaser, but to be a trendsetter with keeping your eyes to the future, paying attention to what's going on around you. And uh, I really love how he talked about body language and how the littlest things you do can communicate negativity to your guests. You really have to be conscious of your body language and how you're communicating with your hands or your face or your just your body in general. So that was really fun to talk about too. And something that keeps coming up time and time again on the show is just being the hardest working. You don't have to be the most intelligent or the most skilled chef or I don't know, the best with numbers, whatever it is, as long as you just show up every day and work harder than the guy next to you, you can be extremely successful in this industry. And we learned that from Charles with how he came over from Scotland and how he got a fake ID just so he could work. And he was working two jobs while in college. And he just, like we talk about that slight edge, that compound effect of just being the guy that's willing to do that a little bit extra every time, people notice these things. And if you're working at a restaurant, be that guy. Be that person who is going to pull the extra long shift, cover someone's shift, takes on a little extra responsibility every day, and it will pay off in the long run. And Charles Liu is living proof of that. Like always, please do connect with me on Facebook and Twitter. Shoot me an email, eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. All the links are right there on my website, www.restaurantunstoppable.com. Shoot me a message. Let me know what you think of the show, who you think should be a guest on the show, and what topics you think need to be discussed. And don't forget to head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash books and tools for a complete recap of all the past books and tools recommended on the show from our past guests mentors this is my way of making it easy on you to put all these resources to one spot so you can find out what the most successful people in our industry are reading and what tools they're leveraging in their businesses and lastly i need your support i would love your support i'd be so grateful for your support uh and the way you can support this podcast is by heading to the support page on the website and making a small donation or simply using the links that i have on my website if there's a book or a tool that you want to leverage in your restaurant uh, because I will get a small commission with my affiliate links. Those really do help me. And they're no extra expense to you. And lastly, just give me a five-star review on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. That really does help with my ranking. And if I can get up to that number one spot solid in iTunes and Stitcher Radio, uh, it will really help with getting recognized and getting out there and helping people like you in this industry. So that's all I have. 
talking way too much now, so I'll leave you alone. Until next time, peace out.